Today's scripture comes from all over Proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You may be seated. Thank you, Bessie. Let me pray for us. Gracious, gentle God, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would make your word live to us. And we pray that your spirit would be with the kids downstairs to make your word live to them. May we as your church together get a glimpse of your gentleness and your grace for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm of the team here. I want to add my welcome to Brett's welcome. It's so good to be with each of you here this morning. We're going to start by talking about wildfires because summer is wildfire season. Now, I'm no expert at wildfires, but what I do know about wildfires is that they can be deadly, can't they? They can start off as small fires, but then they, they very, very quickly can easily spread and grow and get out of control, destroying everything and everyone in their path, leaving behind a trail of scorched earth and broken lives. And I start by it's because it's the same with conflict, isn't it? Conflicts can start as just small disagreements, perhaps misunderstandings over something that is often minor or even silly. But then they can spread quickly, can't they? Grow and get out of control, destroying everything and everyone in their path, leaving behind a trail of scorched earth and, yes, broken lives. So how should we deal with conflict? How should we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, deal with conflict? How should we treat our friends when they have wronged us? Or perhaps when we have wronged them? How should we treat our family when everyone's in a terrible mood, everyone's had a terrible day, and we're all quite grumpy at each other? How should we treat others when, in our eyes at least, they're being downright unreasonable? This morning, as we continue our summer series on Proverbs, we're going to be talking about conflict. And we're going to be asking the question, how should we, as followers of Jesus, deal with the wildfire that is conflict in our lives? We're going to look at three things. Before the wildfire, during the wildfire, and after the wildfire. Before, during, and after. Before we go on, I need to say that as I was studying these texts and this topic for this week, it was really... It was really sobering and, in fact, quite difficult for me because it, these texts, this topic made me realize how much I'm a work in progress. <laughs> in fact, middle of the week, I went to my wife, Jess, and asked, how do I preach on a text that I'm struggling with? And, and she said, preach the text, but tell them that you're struggling with it. So let me tell you, I'm struggling with it. And I bring this up because I, I, I don't think I'm the only one. I think many of us, when it comes to conflict, 
realize day after day that we are works in progress. And so before I go on, I think we need to know it is in God's kindness that He reminds us that we're works in progress. It's in God's kindness that He uses His Word by His Spirit to show us, to shine a light on the air corners of our hearts that need work. And so as, as he does that this morning, let's respond to God's kindness with thanksgiving and humility and, yes, repentance. So to our first point, before the fire, it all starts with prevention. Prevention. Preventing a wildfire is about keeping the ground watered and clear of fire hazards. Ground that is well watered and clear of fire hazards will not catch fire easily and it's the same with our hearts. 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Keeping our hearts well watered means keeping our hearts with vigilance. Watering and nourishing our hearts with God's word with a rich prayer life, keeping in step with His Spirit and spending time with His people. What we are doing now, opening God's Word together in community, we are watering our hearts. A heart that is not well watered is dry and catches fire easily. And we can tell that our heart is dry the same way that when we're walking down the street, we can tell when a lawn has not been watered for weeks. So we keep our hearts well watered, but we also keep our hearts free from fire hazards, meaning clearing out the junk in our hearts, regularly inspecting and confessing and repenting, meaning turning away from sin that God shines a light on in our hearts. Our church building has inspectors that regularly come to inspect for fire hazards. And in the same way, we need to inspect our hearts regularly for fire hazards, putting away crooked speech and devious talk and putting to death, putting to death sinful desires and sinful patterns of thinking and behaving. But we, we can't just trust ourselves to inspect our hearts because we can't see what we can't see. We need God's help to help us see the sin that we cannot see. And one way we can do that, one way we should do that, is to make sure we have people in our lives we can trust to point out the sin that they see. And as I've been encouraging us throughout this summer, if we do not have such a person, look for that person. Now, before the busyness of the fall starts, now ask someone, would you point out sin in my life? This is really important to do because conflict doesn't create sin, it reveals sin. I'm going to say that again. Conflict doesn't create new sin, it reveals the sin that was already there. It's like the cups of coffee that, that some of us are holding. If you knock over the cup, what spills out? It's coffee that spills out. Because what spills out is what was already in the cup. When we say something we shouldn't say, the main problem isn't that we said it, the main problem was that it was already there in the first place. When a building catches fire, it doesn't create fire hazards, it just sets fire to the hazards that were already there. Conflict doesn't create sin, 
it just sets fire to the junk that is already in our heart. So Christ City, are our hearts well watered? Are there fire hazards in our heart? When was the last time we did a fire inspection? The other key before the wildfire is to be prepared. Be prepared. Fire agencies don't wait till the wildfire starts before starting campaigns on prevention. Firefighters don't wait for there to be an actual fire before training on how to put out the fire. And so Proverbs teaches us that the key to preparing for conflict is to grow in our self-control. 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. John, a couple of weeks ago, gave a fantastic sermon on anger and self-control. And if you haven't had a listen, I'd encourage you to, to, to listen to that. It's really good in treating this topic well. But for this morning, the point is this. Self-control doesn't happen overnight. Just like you don't build a wall for a city overnight. Self-control takes time and effort to build up and maintain. And so Christ City, what is the state of self-control in our lives? Are we slow to anger? Or are we like a city without walls? So first point, before the fire. Before the wildfire. Second point, during the wildfire. A couple of months ago, I was uh, running in Pacific Spirit Park. Well, to be honest, actually, the fact that I was running has nothing to do with this story. But I just think it's important that you know that I do run. <laughs> so, where was I? So, <laughs> so, I, so there I was running in Pacific Spirit Park. And, and I see these firefighters walking slowly along the fire line, the, the, fire line, the power line. Apparently, someone had reported seeing smoke. And so the firefighters were just carefully looking for any signs of fire so they could immediately put it out. Because that's the aim when there's a fire, put the fire out. Just one aim, put the fire out. And it's the same with conflict. During the conflict, the aim is to end the conflict. To put the fire out out. I keep saying this because what I'm trying to drum into my head is the next time I'm in conflict, these words ring in my head, put the fire out. Put the fire out. But I need to be clear here, the Bible is not saying avoid all disagreement or confrontation because Jesus himself got into many disagreements and confrontations over wrongs and injustice. The Bible isn't saying don't disagree, it's saying disagree the right way. The Bible isn't saying, don't stand up for what is right. It's saying, stand up for what is right the right way. And so Proverbs gives us two strategies to do, to seek what is right the right way. Two strategies to put the fire out. And the first is this, guard our tongue. Guard our tongue. 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs doesn't mince words, does it? Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. 
Let's be honest, when we're in the heat of conflict, when the temperature is rising, our temptation, our first instinct is to pour fuel on the fire, isn't it? To get things off our chest, to make our case heard, to show them who's boss. And so before we know it, everyone is pouring fuel on the fire and what, what started off as a small flame is now a roaring blaze and everyone's getting burnt, isn't, aren't they? Proverbs is clear. In the heat of the moment, when emotions are high and we can't think straight, put the fire out. Guard our mouth. When in doubt, put the fire out and don't say anything. When we can't see the big picture, don't step forward, take a step back. I remember once I was in a meeting with some godly men and women and, and things were getting a bit heated. So one brother just said, let's take a break to cool down. And 10 minutes later, we get back together and the issue is resolved quickly and peacefully. This incident has, has, has happened, I think, five, six years ago, and it has stuck with me until now because it was such a practical way to deal with such a delicate situation. Acknowledging our tendency to flare up and to say the wrong thing in the heat of the moment, and so taking a step back to just cool down. But again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying avoid disagreement, I'm saying let's set ourselves up for success. Let's set ourselves up for success by approaching differences in a measured and controlled way. Christ City, do we seek to put the fire out? During conflict, do we seek to put the fire out or do we pour fuel onto the flames? How good are we at guarding our mouth? The second way to put the wildfire, to put out the fire, wildfire of conflict is this: be gentle. And even as I say be gentle, some of us are like, ah, I'm not so sure about this one. Because so many of us have so many different understandings of what gentleness is, don't we? And so it's important that we align our understanding of gentleness with what the Bible says gentleness is. 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer, a gentle answer, is one that seeks peace and reconciliation to put out the wildfire, not to make it bigger. It's contrasted for us with a harsh word. The idea of a harsh word is a word that aims to cause pain, to stick it in. So you could say it's a painful word. A painful word stirs up anger. 15 verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue is like a tree of life that nurtures that seeks to build up, that gives life, that nourishes. It's contrasted for us with perverseness. Perverseness sees conversations as wars to be won and not relationships to reconcile. A perverse tongue sees the other person as someone to be beaten up and broken down. Verses 1 and 4 talk about the intentions of gentleness. Are we seeking to feed the fire or to put it out? To tear down or to build up, to hurt or to heal, to wreck or to reconcile, to make a point or to make peace. What is our intention? 
25.15 talks about the timing of gentleness. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Gentleness means sometimes being patient when we need to. Choosing to speak when it's best for others instead of focusing on what's best for ourselves. In the heat of the moment, even when we just desperately want to get that thing off our chest, gentleness means keeping it on, keeping it in. Choosing the good of the other over the good of ourselves. But even as we look through verse 15, verse 15 makes a really important clarification about gentleness. Some of us may have spotted it already. Verse 15 says, a soft tongue will break a bone. That's a curious way of saying it, isn't it? A soft tongue will break a bone. That means a soft tongue can still give a hard word. Gentleness does not mean being passive. Gentleness does not mean avoiding saying hard truths. A person who chooses not to say anything is not being gentle. The person is a coward. A person who avoids speaking hard truth is not being gentle. They're just looking out for themselves. No. A soft tongue will break a bone when needed. Far from being passive and not saying anything, gentleness may mean saying something even when we would rather not. Because gentleness means loving the other person enough to say what needs to be said, but making sure that the intent and timing of what we say is not for ourselves, but for the other person. It's not to make us feel better, it's to build up the other person. So Christ City, are we gentle? Are we gentle? And we cannot trust ourselves to decide whether we are gentle. <laughs> we, we need to ask someone close to us. So if you haven't done this, if we haven't done this recently, why not ask someone, as a practical application today, ask someone, am I gentle? In what way am I not gentle? In what way can I be more gentle? Can I just recommend, when we ask that question, just listen. But we're reluctant to talk about gentleness because gentleness can be very easily mistaken for weakness, can't it? Choosing to hold our tongue, choosing to, to seek peace and rec reconciliation, that can so easily be taken as weakness, can't it? But the Bible is clear. We are called to be gentle just as God himself is gentle. Because true strength is strength under control. True power is gentleness. Because it's modeled after God himself. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Even as Jesus calls us to be gentle, he's the perfect model of gentleness. Jesus treats others with gentleness, and you know what? He treats us with gentleness. In a world where kings were so often harsh, proud, ruthless, cruel dictators, Jesus was gentle and lowly. 
Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to hurt, but to heal, not to break down, but to build up, not to pile on burdens we can't bear, but to give us rest. The one with the power to create the universe treats us with gentleness and tenderness. The one who holds oceans in his hands welcomes us into his embrace with open arms. Even as we seek to be gentle, remember we're not following principles, we're following a person and his name is King Jesus. Gentle King Jesus. Lowly King Jesus. Even as we seek to to obey God in how we treat others, we must always start with how God treats us. And God is gentle with us because he is gentle and lowly. So before the wildfire, during the wildfire, and now after the wildfire, the conflict is over. Or so it seems, for now. Sometimes all sides have taken steps to properly reconcile and and resolve the problem, and if that's the case, that's great. But even then, the wounds are raw. Other times, the problem is not resolved. And even though it seems like everything is back to normal on the surface, under the surface, the, the embers are still smoldering, waiting to flare up again. Before the wildfire, the aim is to prevent the fire. During the wildfire, the aim is to put the fire out. After the wildfire, the aim is to keep the fire out. Keep the fire out. And again, Proverbs gives us two ways to do that. The first is this, seek understanding. After the conflict, with space and time to calm down and get perspective, Proverbs reminds us that things are always more complicated than they seem. Things are always more than they seem. And so we need the humility to admit that we might have been wrong. To to admit that there are things we may not have been seeing. To seek understanding. 18 verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Understanding means seeking to see see the whole picture, seeing things from all points of view. A really helpful guide into whether we've understood a situation properly is this. Are we able to explain the situation in such a way that everyone involved says that you are representing them fairly? If you were to give everyone's account of the situation, would they say they're being fairly represented and heard? Christ City, do we have the humility to seek understanding? Do we have the humility to admit that we may not see the full picture? Do we have the humility to admit that we may be wrong? As we seek, as we get understanding, understanding often acts as a light that shines on us, so shines on the situation so that we see ourselves and others differently. Sometimes understanding shines a light on sin in us. Sometimes understanding shines a light on suffering and pain or circumstances in others that we did not know and could not see and they did not tell us about. 14 verse 10, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Is that there may be bitterness that we do not see in someone else. 14.13, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Things are not always as they seem. 
Sometimes the light of understanding reveals that all parties are just reacting in offense to each other, reacting and lashing out because everyone has just backed each other into a corner. We've all been there, haven't we? We're arguing and after all, we don't know what we're arguing about. The issue is long gone, but now I'm just saying, you said, I said, you said, I said. 18 verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. We need to be clear here though. Even as we seek understanding, getting understanding doesn't mean that everyone's actions will be justified in the end. That's not what we're looking for. It also doesn't mean that we'll necessarily understand why everyone acted the way we did. they did. We may not even understand why we acted the way we did. Because at the end of the day, the cold hard truth of living in a fallen world is this, hurt people will hurt people. Hurt people will hurt people. We all struggle with sin. We all do things we shouldn't that don't make sense. And so keeping the fire out cannot stop at at just seeking understanding. It's what we do with the understanding. Where we realize where we have sinned, where we have done wrong, we need to repent and seek forgiveness from those we have wronged. My tendency when I realize that I have sinned is to try and double down and explain away my sin. But no, we are, we are to repent and seek forgiveness for what we have done wrong from the ones we have wronged. But that's not all. Where others may have wronged us, and yes, others will wrong us, we are called to respond with grace and forgiveness. To respond with grace and forgiveness. One of the biggest threats to relationships is unforgiveness. What is unforgiveness? Unforgiveness is what happens when the problem is left unresolved and it's just left smoldering under the surface, waiting to flare up again. Unforgiveness is one that is content with the appearance of peace and not actually having peace. Sometimes it's cultural. Some cultures prefer the appearance of peace to actually getting peace. Unforgiveness, what does it look like? It means refusing to let go of past hurts and instead replaying them in our minds over and over and over again. What do our minds dwell on when we've got nothing to think about? Unforgiveness looks like overreacting to a small problem because in our minds, it's just evidence of a much bigger problem we've been dwelling on and accumulating evidence for. You always do that. Unforgiveness means defining a person by all that he or she has ever done to offend you. Unforgiveness means and looks like a slow, toxic slide towards bitterness and resentment that often leads to just tolerating the presence of that person in our lives. And dare I say it, in our homes. That's what unforgiveness looks like. And get this, unforgiveness is understandable but it's not the way of Christ. As we follow Jesus, we need to know that the way of Christ is not the way of unforgiveness. 
Christ doesn't just call us to forgive, he says it's in our glory to forgive. 1911, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. To overlook an offence. Notice that it's not, it's not conditional. It's not overlook an offence when the person apologises. It's not overlook an offence when, when you realise why the person did what they did. Grace chooses to be slow to anger and to overlook an offence, full stop. Tenders verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Hatred st seeks to stir up further offence and conflict. But grace seeks to put out the fire and to keep it out. To seek reconciliation and harmony by preventing further offence and conflict. 17 verse 9, whoever covers an offence seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Don't bring it up again. Grace and love forgive and move past the offence. Bruce Waltke describes grace and love this way. Bruce Waltke is a scholar who's done a lot of work on Proverbs. He writes this, Hatred is personified as someone who, having been wronged, is now seeking revenge. Such hatred looks for company and soon awakens dormant conflicts in the community. By contrast, love, also personified, cherishes the wrongdoer as a friend to be won. And can I add, as a family member to be reconciled with. Love conceals, which means draws a veil over, moves past all kinds of transgressions. Instead of exposing the wrongdoers on the front page of the tabloids, and in, in, in today's day and age, can I say, instead of exposing the wrongdoers on the front page of your social media, in your WhatsApp, love, at great cost to self, at great cost to self, absorbs the wrong in order to reconcile and save the offender from death. Love, at great cost to self, absorbs the wrong in order to reconcile and save the offender from death. Grace means that even after the fire has been put out on the surface, you keep watering it and watering it and watering it until any hint of any amber is gone. Grace means choosing not to hold it against them. Grace means choosing not to have the last word even though you're entitled to. Grace means choosing not to say anything even when someone asks you what happened. And even as I talk about that, a big part of grace is learning to trust God, isn't it? Trusting God to do what only God can do. Sometimes we, we, we want to hold on to, to the, to the offence. We struggle to move past the offence because we want justice to be done. It's not fair if, I, if no one does anything and no one knows. Sometimes we don't want to let go because we want to hold on to control by holding on to a bargaining chip. If I let go of it and I forget, next time something happens, I, I can't bring this up. Sometimes we want to hold on to offence. We want to have the last word because we want to protect our reputation. And so grace is trusting God. 
Trusting God that He will ultimately make sure justice is done. Grace is trusting God enough to disadvantage ourselves to the advantage of others, even when no one else knows about it. Grace is about doing the right thing and trusting that God will protect what needs to be protected. But we need to be clear here. Forgiveness and overlooking an offence doesn't mean there aren't consequences. If someone steals your car, you can still forgive them and they still go to prison. As a parent, you can forgive your child and still discipline them so that they learn the consequences of their actions. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that we can't, we shouldn't be wise. If your friend has problems with alcohol, you can forgive them and never step in a bar together. If a member of your family has problems with anger, you can forgive them and still insist that they get help. You can still insist that you get help. Christ City, our, in our desire to do whatever is best for ourselves, sometimes we misconstrue, we misunderstand forgiveness so that it's just a tool, a weapon to use against someone to get what we want. But it's not like that at all. Forgiveness is on God's terms, not our terms. And as, even as you talk about this, can I just add, the point of today's sermon is to watch out for the plank in our eye, not the speck in the other's eye. I know some of us, we are thinking now, oh, this person really should listen to this sermon. <laughs> you should forgive me. Don't you know you should forgive me? You're not moving past. You... <laughs> Christ City, I, 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 acknowledge, I acknowledge that this is a complicated conversation to have, but it is what, that's what it is. It's, this is the start of a conversation. And I'd encourage us, as you think about how to respond to God's Word, let's do it in conversation with others. We need wisdom to know exactly how to apply God's Word. But one thing we need to know is that it starts with us and not the other. And even as it starts, starts with us, Grace is costly, isn't it? Because by definition, by definition, grace means giving someone what they do not deserve or not treating that person as they deserve. And someone's got to bear the cost. Choosing to forgive, and not just to forgive, but to love the person who's wronged you, who's mocked you, perhaps humiliated you, it's, it's difficult and it's costly. Choosing to reconcile instead of retaliate is costly. Choosing to be silent at the expense of your reputation is costly. Grace is costly, but we need to hear this. Grace is worth it. Grace is costly, but grace is worth it. Because every act of grace, even if the person doesn't know about it or even ask for it, is, is us bringing God's grace to bear on this earth. Every act of grace is putting to actions the words that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are bringing kingdom principles onto this earth. When we forgive Christ City, we're not just forgiving, we are bringing God's kingdom onto this earth. We are doing what does not make sense because it makes sense in the economy of God's kingdom. 
And every act of grace is not just bringing God's character onto this earth, it is also clothing ourselves with His character. Every act of grace is a response to the grace God first showed us. Even as God calls us to bear the cost of grace, remember this, He bore the infinitely larger cost of grace by putting His Son on that cross for us. Even as God calls us, encourages us, exhorts us to forgive much in others, remember this, He has given, he is forgiven much more in each of us. Luke 23, 33 is part of the account of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, the criminals, one on his right and, on his, and one on his left. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even after they whipped him to an inch of his life, even as they nailed him to the cross to suffocate the life out of him, even as they mocked him and dared him to save his own life, what did Jesus say? He said, Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many in the crowd heard Jesus saying that? Jesus forgave them and gave up his life for them. And hear this, Jesus forgives us and gives up his life for us. It doesn't start with what he calls us to do. It starts with what he has done for us. Even though we sin against him, even though we mock him, he forgave us and sacrificed himself for us. Jesus took the death that we deserve so that we might live the life that we do not deserve, that we could never earn. Jesus came to put the wildfire of conflict separating us from God out. He came out, he came to put out the fire. And you know how Jesus put out the fire? With his own blood. Jesus bore the cost of forgiveness. He watered the wildfire between separating us and God with his own blood. God calls us to forgive, but He does not call us to forgive any more than He has already forgiven us. God calls us to bear the cost of forgiveness, but He does not call us to bear a cost any more than the cost He has borne for us. And get this, His Spirit enables us to do what we thought we could never do. Forgiveness is supernatural and therefore we have supernatural help. Before we talk about the life of following Jesus, we must start with what God has already done for us because following Jesus is a response to what God has already done for us. God's grace is not a trickle, it's an ocean, it's an endless ocean for us to bathe in. God's grace is not a cup of water. It's an endless fountain for us to drink from now and forevermore. And the good news of the gospel is that as we follow Jesus, we don't just follow Him. He makes us more like Him. Isn't it amazing? We read about how Jesus is gentle Jesus and gracious Jesus. And you know what? He wants us to become more like Him and He is making us more like Him. 
Through His Word, by His Spirit, among His people, God clothes us with His character, with His gentleness and grace. The discomfort we feel right now is the discomfort of God making us more like Him. The discomfort in our hearts, the uncertainty in our spirit, you know what? That's God at work. Don't ignore it, embrace it. Don't harden your hearts. Respond to His grace. When we read about Jesus, we're not just reading a picture of what Christ has done for us, we're reading a picture of what Christ is doing in us to make us more like Him. God is making us into His likeness and even though it is often costly and difficult and oh, so uncomfortable, Christ City, it's worth it. There is no greater joy, no greater satisfaction than being instruments of God's supernatural grace on this earth and becoming the people that God in His kindness is making us to be. Let's stand as we respond to God's word.